Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel in the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be here today with you. Your time is precious, and I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. It's a quick start today. I have to tell you right here at the start that today's show is on a very strange topic. It used to be a nearly invisible topic. In fact, few of us have ever encountered it in real life. But in today's world of the woke, this issue only gets stranger and and more fantastic. I suppose it will continue to get strange until it becomes a new normal. And then we'll all be concerned we missed an opportunity to understand it better from the very beginning. In fact, there's so much to come up to speed about on this subject that it may actually take two shows to tell you all about it. So what is it already? Well, I'm going to share with you what I've learned about today's teenage transgender phenomena and why I believe you'll want to know more about it. There's so many issues to address concerning what has become an epidemic, perhaps even a pandemic among Western nations. This pan-epidemic seems to be around the explosion of gender dysphoria among our teenage population, and in particular, female adolescents. I'm talking about young girls aged 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, even 17 years old. My discussion today is only about teen girls, especially adolescent, prepubescent, and pubescent girls who are in the throes of a psychopathology called gender dysphoria. More disconcerting, an increasing number of our adolescent girls are looking to change their gender identities through chemicals and surgeries in hopes of relieving their psychosomatic suffering resulting from their self-diagnosed gender dysphoria. But this exploding issue among adolescent girls isn't just among our American teen girls. An alarming trend of teenage adolescent gender dysphoria is on a rampage that not only throughout the United States, but in Canada, the United Kingdom, Finland, Scandinavia, and a host of other Western nations. Now, there are at least two disconcerting facts about this explosion of female adolescent gender dysphoria. First, prior to 2012, gender dysphoria was practically an exclusive male psychopathology affecting very young boys between the ages of two and four years old. Somewhere around 0.01%, or 1 in 10,000 boys aged 2 to 4, enter into some sort of gender confusion. We've never really understood it. We do know that approximately 80% of these very few young boys grow out of their early gender confusion and their angst and go on to live lives as male, gendered young adults. The other 20% or so eventually declare as gay or bisexual. Secondly, there are very few, I mean very few reports of girls between the ages of two and four years having ever displayed gender dysphoria. 
for young girls somewhere between 1 and 27,000 to 30,000 find themselves with this same problem. Now, as you can see, until very recently, gender dysphoria, formerly known as gender identity disorder, has been an extremely rare event, even among teenage girls. In fact, it's been almost unheard of, <laughs> however, until 2012. Since then, the number of teen girls complaining they feel their boys trapped in girls' bodies has ballooned nearly 5,000%. Yeah, yeah, in approximately nine years, reported cases of gen gender dysphoria among adolescent girls is up nearly 5,000%, not 50%, not 500%, but nearly 5,000%. I mean, recent reports that between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender-affirming surgeries for natal or females that were born female in the U.S., those surgeries have quadrupled. These surgeries like uh, double breast mastectomies and hysterectomies, that's what we're talking about. In the United Kingdom, the rates of reported gender dysphoria for teenage girls are up in that country over 4,400%. That's just over the previous decade. And they've got a very good reporting system in the UK because it's, it's all centralized government uh, health care. And uh, as I've said, these are only the reported cases. Now, the, the actual number is bound to be much higher. As I've already mentioned, gender dysphoria is an ailment that typically begins in early childhood and overwhelmingly afflicts very young boys. But suddenly, adolescent girls suffering from gender dysphoria are the new dominant demographic group. So to begin with, what in tarnation is gender dysphoria? Who, who gets it? And if you have it, what's to be done about it? Gender dysphoria is a type of psychological distress. Gender dysphoria arises when a person senses a mismatch, an incongruence, or some kind of misalignment between their current gender identity and their birth-assigned gender identity. In so many words, and according to the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, gender dysphoria is a distressing psychological impairment due to gender incongruence resulting from a strong belief that sufferers are not living according to their authentic gender. Now, in our case, it's a feeling that a teenage girl has when she comes to believe that she's really a boy trapped in a girl's body. I know, I said this was going to be strange. In short, gender dysphoria is your mind telling you that somehow your genes got crosswired and, and put the real you in the wrong biologic sex. Gender dysphoria occurs when you look at your external genitalia and confirm you're a girl but you're sure something went terribly wrong and you feel like a boy. In fact, you're absolutely convinced that you're a boy and not a girl. But somehow your mind waited until you were about to enter puberty or it waited until you were midstream into puberty before alarming you that you were living a fraudulent life. And the panic you're experiencing is the nightmare that it just won't end. So what happened? We know your genetics didn't really cause this to happen, or at least our evolutionary biology tells us this. I mean, after all, gender is a cultural construct, not a biological one. We learn our gender roles according to how our parents and others raise us, and normally those around us 
raise us into the gender roles according to our natal or our birth sex. Baby boys receive baby blue blankets and baby girls receive baby pink blankets. I mean, when you go shopping for baby gifts of congratulation, there aren't any baby gray blankets, but they're coming, rest assured. Until recently, our birth certificates confirmed our birth sex and classically our gender identities. We, we never really thought of them as separate things. You're either a female or a male. Right? Wrong? Don't know? Uh, take a moment. Yeah, take a moment right now, please, and ask yourself, have you ever thought about changing your gender? Yes, your gender. You know, like a switch from acting and dressing like a woman or a man and taking on the opposite gender role? <laughs> I know, I, I know it's a stupid question, right? But if you were asked to describe your gender identity, most of us wouldn't say, I, I, I don't know, or I'll have to get back with you about that. You display your gender identity all the time in the way you look and act, right? In other words, you display your gender identity through your gender expression and the gender roles you play. It's the clothing you wear, the ma your mannerisms, the pitch and tone of your voice, and the roles you take on uh, at work, at home, and in public. For the majority of us, gender identity just doesn't change. We don't even think about it as we go through our daily lives. I can't even remember a time when I ever thought of being the opposite gender. I was born a baby boy, the eldest of six children. The next three of us were girls, so I had plenty of opportunity to see what being a girl was all about. And while I love my sisters and my sisters-in-laws and my darling wife, I have never thought about being a girl or a woman. Now we have three sons who are grown men, and well, I, I haven't asked them the question about whether they've ever thought about being a woman. I'm fairly confident as to what their answers would be. Heck, I've had my hands full of just being a man in today's trying times, when men and male gender roles are under attack by the unenlightened, unprogressive left. You know, they call it male toxicity. Which makes me wonder why so many teenage girls are in the throes of transitioning into teenage boys. And not just in their gender expressions, but in their gender identities. If your experiences are like mine. You probably have never paid attention to how and why someone, someone's gender identity or gender expression could or would shift as children grow into young adolescents and eventually young adults. But believe it or not, there are adolescents who are what's called gender fluid, or at least they're beginning to identify themselves as gender fluid individuals. All this means is that they're not sure or that they don't want to commit to a gender yet. Like, like what? Like, 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 have you noticed, like, how often, like, the younger generation, like, says like a lot? But joking aside, the nature of non-committal teens is very similar to staying loose about a commitment to an academic major in college. When you're not sure, you say your major is... I'm in general studies, like whatever that is. You'll also find that the new gender culture wars are packed with new gender language. Like, have you heard of being gender fluid before? Well, how about cisgender? Have you heard this word before? C-I-S gender, all one word, cisgender. Cisgender is an adjective that describes a person 
whose gender identity and gender expression correspond to their culturally determined gender roles for their birth sex. What? I had to read this definition three times before I got it. And in short, it says, if you're a cisgender, you're not a transgender. Yes, at least 95% of us are cisgenders. Gone are the good old days where there was only one of two boxes to check, either male or female. You'll also hear the terms binary and non-binary, along with conforming and non-conforming. The literature is replete with acronyms like TGNC, meaning transgender and gender nonconforming. Binary means having two parts, either male or female. Therefore, non-binary is a term used to describe those genders that don't fall into one of these two bookend categories known as male or female. Now, conforming means that you're either a male or a female, period. Non-conforming is like non-binary. These individuals fall somewhere along the spectrum between males and females. Oh, my heavens. Sometimes we just have too many choices. I mean, I know that doesn't sound very American, but for heaven's sakes already. Now, as I've mentioned before, most of us identify as male or female gendered. Or in today's gender language, we're cisgender, binary, and conforming. All this to say, I'm a man and you're a woman. In today's gender language, someone whose gender fluid may change their gender expression or gender identity, or both over time. Now, for some adolescents, being gender fluid may be a way to explore their authentic gender identity before what's called settling on a quote-unquote stable gender It's strange even talking about this stuff, but I can assure you it's all very real, it's all very new, and it's all here to stay. So if this strikes you strange, well, you're not alone. Today's birth certificates, driver's license, hospital forms, and other government documents, they give us the choice of being male, female, or other. Most of us would probably ask, other than what? But back to the dysphoria and teens phenomena. Now, if the intensity of gender dysphoria grows strong enough in pubescent females, those going through puberty, they may develop a strong desire to arrest the unfolding of any further female puberty-driven secondary sex characteristics. To do this, they need to start a regimen of cross-sex hormones, such as testosterone for girls as a start toward changing their secondary sex characteristics in support of their new-felt male gender identity. Furthermore, pubescent teens suffering with gender dysphoria may also display a strong dislike of their developing sexual anatomy and eventually look to surgeries to eliminate certain sex organs such as breasts. However, most teens begin the process of changing genders by beginning to dress act and participate in activities sort of stereotypically associated with the opposite gender. This is called social transition. This is also a chance to test their assumptions that transitioning helps ameliorate or lessen their depression and anxiety associated with their gender dysphoria. However, this trial period isn't socially risk-free. High school teens in these circumstances immediately stick out as gender non-conforming adolescents. 
Their high schools may have policies ensuring additional zero-tolerance policies about bullying or discrimination against transgender teens. Additionally, schools may have mandatory policies requiring teachers and administrators to address these teens by their preferred new gender name and preferred pronouns. Now, both of these only tend to put a spotlight on these students, inviting more problems. Furthermore, for those prepubescent adolescents who, who are looking to puberty blockers to relieve their gender dysphoria, well, there's another consequence. They're no longer going through puberty as most of their classmates are during this time period. Their physical differences uh, won't manifest immediately, but the changes between those going through puberty and the few who aren't will eventually become quite noticeable drawing only further attention to these students. I don't know how that really gets about addressing their anxiety or depression or their gender dysphoria. Adding to an already complicated psychosociology, there are increasing reports of woke teachers and staff helping transitioning teens conspire to keep their gender-switching information secreted away from their, uh, from their students' parents for obvious reasons that parents would more than likely not be very supportive. It's amazing how many times parents are unaware of their son's or daughter's alternative school gender. This highlights another increasingly thorny problem. If a teen is under the age of 18, and most of these are under the age of 16 that we're talking about, what rights do they have to initiate any aspect of gender transition? And what's the school's legal obligation to inform parents that Jane is now officially going by the name of Jim at school? But back to issues with those who are prepubescent girls suffering from gender dysphoria. Now, they may option to begin a course of puberty blockers before proceeding to cross-sex hormone therapy. Researchers cite three reasons for starting puberty blockers in these young adolescents. First, it gives an adolescence and hopefully their family more time to explore transgender issues. Secondly, if a pre-adolescent boy or girl goes on puberty blockers and then decides on a regimen of cross-sex hormones, they're going to avoid developing those physical features of the sex they're trying to transition from. In other words, not going through puberty and then going directly on to cross-sex hormones can physically and cosmetically soften or alter some of the secondary sex characteristics that, that come with puberty. Boys transitioning to girls, for instance, won't develop beards or Adam's apples or chest hair, uh, and they're not going to grow as tall or develop, develop heavier skull and bone structures as a male normally would. Likewise, girls transitioning to boys will avoid menstruating, widening hips, and will more easily take on physical male characteristics like growing a beard and, and lowering their voice tones. Thirdly, should a teen change their mind about going forward with transition, puberty blockers are easily discontinued and puberty will proceed shortly after these blockers are discontinued. However, the first reason given uh, above here is rather disingenuous. 99% of teens who begin with puberty blockers proceed to a regimen of cross-sex hormone therapy.
So you often hear people say, well, the puberty blockers really give people time to sort this all out. Nobody sorts that out, you know, and there's not a lot of relief from puberty blockers. The real lift is really on uh, cross-sex hormones, and the reports are that this does lead to sort of a euphoric uh, feeling and that people do feel better for the first several months on testosterone or on estrogen. So while puberty blockers are often cited as a benefit, these drugs often don't provide the relief needed to calm gender dysphoria. When the situation proceeds to starting cross-sex hormones, by that time it's clear that an adolescent girl is no longer psychologically comfortable only dressing up and acting according to their new gender roles. They've heard from their transgendered peers and from information on the internet that if you really want relief, then you need to start on cross-sex hormone replacement. But once you start these sex hormones, you've taken a very serious and often irreversible step toward transition that that has some very serious life consequences. I ask you to think about this as if you're the parent of a daughter who believes she has gender dysphoria and wants to transition into a boy. Unfortunately, as we'll explore later, there's practically no pushback, no questioning or curious exploration by clinicians, social workers, physicians, or mental health therapists about a teen's self-diagnosis or personal decision to move forward with this kind of transition. As you'll see, this is all part of what the progressive left calls and demands as gender affirmative care. Practitioners prescribing blockers and hormones are there to affirm the teen's personal decision about transition. They're not there to challenge it. I can hear you asking, how is that ethical or legal without a parent's consent? Uh, we're coming to that. Hold on. Uh, when you think about it, though, you you could be that that daughter's parent. Heck, I could be that daughter's parent. Cross-sex hormones come with very serious medical and life-altering consequences. Used for any extended period of time, they cause permanent sterility. So, so please listen. The, the radical progressive gender community, which includes the LGBTQ political activist community, fully support the right of children at any age to decide their own gender identity and to act on their own to take steps to to change their gender in relief of their self-diagnosed gender dysphoria. The LGBTQ community sees this much like the plight of gay men and lesbian women. Only gay men and lesbian women have the right to determine and declare their homosexuality. However, there's a critically important difference. Neither being homosexual or heterosexual requires a person to try puberty blockers or undergo a lifetime of hormone therapy. Furthermore, these other two sexual orientations don't deal with healthy organ amputations like double breast mastectomies or surgery to remove one's penis, penectomies or or one's testicles, also known as emasculation both of which are typically only done in cases of very advanced cancers, but now also in gender-affirming surgeries. As we go through this journey of what's happening in the teen world of transgenderism, 
I believe you'll come to see why I just couldn't walk away from this subject. Which brings me to two important points. First, if we don't finish today, I will follow up in next weekend's show. There may be just too much to unpack in today's 53 minutes of show. Second, before we go any further down the transgender road, I must tell you that I'm approaching this entire gender transformation topic with considerable concern and hesitation. But it's more than just hesitation. I also have serious apprehension, trepidation, and considerable uneasiness in reporting this subject. Why? Because my family has repeatedly asked me to avoid talking about this subject that may enrage the radical progressive LGBTQ activist community. They've said, who, Daniel, who, who cares about what's going on in the world of, of adolescent female transgenderism? Just, just leave it alone. They continue to tell me that I don't have the energy to cope with the malicious, mendacious hate that comes from the left when anyone talks on gender or anything the LGBTQ political lobby is involved with. Now, as many of you know, I, I have leukemia for the second time, and my energy levels aren't what they used to be. I've already put this show off for more than a month out of concern. But I, I feel compelled to speak about this issue. Frankly, my family's worried about my personal safety, and likewise, I'm concerned about theirs as well. To add to this caution, my friends and those on social media have told me to be more than extra careful in talking about teen transgenders, if talking about it at all. Given the testimony of other parents at school board meetings, I know this is an important topic. I agree with my friends' advice and their assessments and the potential risks. We know from numerous reports that the progressive left is rabidly prepared to napalm anyone who dares oppose their dictates on issues they perceive as encroaching on the civil rights of the transgendered and those approaching transgendering. In short, my friends have told me anyone daring to broach gender issues is juggling sticks of lighted dynamite. I get it. Seriously. Trust me, I am not suicidal, nor am I attempting to be any sort of broadcast champion of truth. I'll settle for just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I'm not here to pass any moral judgments or talk anyone out of or into changing their gender. From my perspective, adolescent gender issues, particularly the nature and origin of today's explosion in female uh, gender dysphoria and the rush that the gender transition it is far too critical to let progressive gender activists squelch any and all genuine curiosity or serious inquiry into this subject. Of course, the radical progressive left continues to savagely attack anyone who questions issues like critical race theory, social and environmental justice, racial equity, defund the police, voter integrity laws, or any of the dozens of other outrageous radical proposed congressional legislation. Why should talking about transgender teens be any different? Well, let's pick that question up and the answers to it right after the break. You all come back now. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall 
supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cells Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off your first order. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. Before the break, we were considering why the radical progressive left's hyper-gender-focused activists viciously attack anyone who questions their official position on female pre-adolescence and young adolescence self-claims of gender dysphoria. Now, by the way, for simplicity's sake, let's just call gender dysphoria a GD in short. Uh, the, the answer to the above question is really quite simple, and it's the very same answer why the left strives to smother any rational debate about any part of their woke agenda. If you're a speaker at a college function, they'll shut you down. They'll throw harmful objects at you and hound you until you just up and leave campus. No one can hire enough physical security to ensure you can survive on campus more than about 15 minutes much less give a lecture or an address on an academic topic that questions any part of the woke agenda. Try to publish an informational article, or worse yet, publish a well-researched and written scientific study on the topic of transgenderism among teens. If you're initially successful, the woke left will find and threaten the publisher with pickets and boycotts. If it's an academic article, the journal's editors and the medical society's publisher will be threatened by outsiders and even woke members of their respective medical societies until the study is not only retracted and expunged, but that the journal's editors they publish an extensive apology to the transgender community of all things for allowing what they call hate speech to find its way into their journal in the first place. <laughs> 
Now allow me to share some alarming activity with you. Abigail Shire is a Yale-educated lawyer and a journalism graduate of both Columbia and Oxford universities. Ms. Shire is an extensively published and highly respected journalist in her own right and frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, the National Review, and numerous other periodicals. In 2020, she wrote and published a remarkable book entitled Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Miss Shire has three children of her own. She used the available science to put forward a compelling theory of what appears to be an exploding social craze contagion fueled by peer influence among teen girls that's been turbocharged by both the legacy and social media. She writes that it's not unusual for girls going through puberty to feel unhappy with their bodies and to have a a desperate need to carve out their own identities. What concerns Abigail Shire is that adolescent girls who self-identify, self-diagnose as trans are now placed on a pathway of medical treatment, starting with hormone blockers and then inexorably onto further hormone regimens and even surgery with irreversible consequences and lifelong infertility and and the possibility of devastating personal regret. Believe me, there's an extensive list of woes teenage girls are coping with these days. It isn't a walk through the tulips for adolescent high school students. And this is most certainly true for adolescent girls who already register in with attempted suicide rates multiple times higher than adolescent boys. I'll get to these multiple social environmental teen obstacles next week, and you'll see how snugly they fit into Ms. Shire's social craze theory of GD and transgenderism among teen girls. The matchup between today's teen school and social environments and the the depression and anxiety exhibited by adolescent girls is is frightening, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic that closed on-campus classes. Now, as you might expect, with the growing numbers of female adolescents claiming GD and seeking to become trans youths, there's also a growing number of detransitioners, or girls who regret their transactions, and who are desperately attempting to return to their prior female gender. A couple of months ago, 60 Minutes ran a 12-minute segment on teens and young adults who felt they were duped into transitioning and badly advised by the medical community about their supposed transgender diagnosis. These young adults are now working to reclaim what they can of their original gender identity, but but for many who, who've been on cross-sex hormone regimens or, or had mastectomies and hysterectomies and the like, their hopes of returning to their prior gender is nearly impossible. In any event, if you haven't uh, heard of Ms. Shire's book, Irreversible Damage, or haven't gotten around to reading it, I highly, I highly recommend it. You can also get it as an audiobook from Audible. In my opinion, Ms. Schreier is an extremely ethical, responsible, and skilled author who has thankfully brought this very important subject to fore. I sincerely believe without her courage 
and her personal resolve to bring this issue forward, knowing that she'd be pilloried by the mendacious left, most of us would still be largely unaware of how extensive and growing this issue of female adolescent GD and teen transgenderism is today. For the book, she interviewed multiple scores of teenage uh, transgenders and adult transgenders, and her book has an extensive bibliography. Moreover, you can find dozens of her public speeches and interviews on this topic on YouTube and other video websites. She's a dauntless, intrepid, resolute author, and I admire her at work and, and appreciate her courage, but I, I, I don't take everything she argues in the book as gospel truth. But, but this is true of every book and article I read. I'm sure it's the same with you. Importantly, having read her other articles on this subject, I believe she doesn't take everything she's brought to the table as settled science about GD and teen transgenderism. She's not attempting to be a physician or a mental health specialist. What's critical is that she's brought this problem, and it is a major problem, out and into the open. Now, while her name has become synonymous with the teen gender dysphoria craze, I want you to know that she's entered the public square at considerable personal and professional risk. And more than just risk, she's continued to pay a heavy price for highlighting this off-the-wall escalation of adolescent female transgenderism. No sooner than her book was published, the progressive left's gender hit squad went apoplectic, and then they went on a vicious attack of her book, and Ms. Shire personally. As far as the LGBTQ community and their very aggressive activist supporters are concerned, Abigail Schreier is a pariah, a persona non grata, a leper, and an untouchable. They've attempted to deplatform her from all social media, and in every way she's constantly feeling the wrath of the progressive left. Although you can buy her book on Amazon, Amazon will not allow her publisher to advertise her book on Amazon. Nor will any of the woke social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the like allow her publisher to advertise her book. With no ill intended, she's just poked the gender mafia's hornet's nest, and she's somehow managed to attract the world of LGBTQ killer bees. It's been one unkind cut after another. For instance, in a recent statement, the American Booksellers Association, the ABA, apologized to the public for promoting her book, Irreversible Damage, calling it an oversight in releasing a serious, violent incident. Now, the ABA objected to the very premise that there's a social contagion effect on young girls, rushing them into invasive medical procedures for gender dysphoria, which they are likely to regret later. I mean, they just don't buy any part of that. The ABA leaders expressed disgust with their own organization's actions, and they demanded significant improvements to its book promotion process that would flag and prevent such allegedly politically incorrect books from making the cut in the future. What? This isn't a political book. There's not an ounce of conservative ideology or Republican Party promotion in any part of Ms. Schreier's book or her numerous articles on the subject. I, hello, 
Uh, her book isn't a Hitlerian version of Mein Kampf transgenderism, but the left would have you believe this. Now, the ABA statement reads, quote, This anti-trans book was included in our July mailing to members. This is a serious, violent incident that goes against ABA policies, values, and everything we believe and support. It's inexcusable. Furthermore, we apologize to our trans members and to the trans community for this terrible incident and the pain we have caused them. However, many of the ABA member booksellers didn't believe the ABA's apology went far enough, if you could believe that. So then the ABA went out, they went that extra mile, and they emailed the following statement to all ABA about member booksellers, over 750 of them. Quote, These incidents harmed booksellers, ABA board members, and ABA staff who identify as LGBTQIA+, and BIPOC, Biopec, as well as of the wider gender community. They also added to a toxic anti-gender culture, end quote. Now, if you're wondering what the acronym BIPOC, BIPOC, stands for, it means Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Uh, how, how Abigail's book hurt this community of color is unimaginable. Obviously, the ABA uh, hasn't read the book. However, if you read her book, you'll quickly discover that Abigail Schreier isn't anti-trans or a transphobe. She only questions the steep line increase in female adolescent cases and the lack of solid medical science that any of the current therapies actually give young adults true, long-lasting relief. She's extremely empathetic of these young people and their parents, She's also very supportive of the adult trans people who have moved on with their lives and are doing quite well. From my point of view, trans adults are just that. They're adults, and they're free to do with their bodies as they wish, just as long as it doesn't violate any legality. For instance, Bruce Jenner, who we're probably all familiar with as an Olympic gold medal winner, is now and has been for some time Caitlyn Jenner. Ms. Jenner is not a cross-dresser, by the way. A cross-dresser is a person who dresses in a style or manner traditionally associated with the opposite sex, but doesn't claim to be the opposite sex. I think the preferred term is transvestite. In any event, Ms. Jenner decided to openly declare that although she's been a biologic male, she's always felt more comfortable as a transgendered woman. And that's totally fine with Miss Shire, as well as me. Caitlyn Jenner is an adult, and if Caitlyn feels more comfortable as a woman than as an American, she has every right to be so noted. And I fully accept that without question. Moreover, I have no problem with a female Caitlyn Jenner, and I would defend her civil rights to legal protection against any form of discrimination. I also have no problem calling Caitlyn, Caitlyn, or using her pronouns. After all, that's what liberty is about. Her transgenderism doesn't pose harm to me, and it certainly doesn't threaten my male gender identity. But as a point of interest, if the Democrats propose legislation entitled the Equity Act, if that passes, it will demand that we accept unfettered transgender-affirming treatment 
as a legitimate undertaking for preteens and young adults. More importantly, the Equity Act will place preteens' ability to seek gender affirming care beyond the legal reach of parental oversight. I'm not on board with this ridiculous progressive encroachment of the rights of parents. As you probably remember, President Joe Biden, on his first day in office, issued an executive order preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. President Biden has come out in favor of children as young as 10 or 11 years of age to be allowed to make their own transgender decisions without the interference of their parents. Now, here's a recent clip, uh, very recent, from the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, the DOJ's Office of Civil Rights, and the Undersecretary of Health and Human Services telling transgender adolescent students that these departments and the president has their backs. You're a transgender student. Perhaps you're worried about simply being accepted and safe and being treated with respect as you head into the new school year. I'm Kristen Clark, the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. We know that many school administrators and educators are doing their best to make schools safe and welcoming places for all students including LGBTQI students. We appreciate the work they do. But we also know that that's not the reality for all transgender students, including perhaps some of you. In some places, people in positions of authority are putting up obstacles that would keep you from playing on the sports field, accessing the bathroom, and and receiving the supportive and life-saving care you may need. We're here to say that's wrong, and it's against the law. The Department of Justice is here, along with the Department of Education, to investigate complaints about discrimination or harassment based on sexual orientation or gender identity. We want you to know that we are looking out for you, and we're here to protect your civil rights. President Biden sent an unequivocal message to the transgender community, quote, To all transgender Americans watching at home, especially the young, I want you to know your president has your back, unquote. What a curious message from three cabinet-level positions. If every school of, say, a thousand students had only five transgendered students, do you think these three departments would have put this video message out? The actual video message is about five and a half minutes long and it includes how to contact these departments to file a claim. Notice the White House nor any cabinet members sent video messages ensuring young Republicans or young conservative chapters at the high schools, or for instance, Charlie Kirk's Turning Point organization, uh, that the DOJ and the DOE and the DHHS had their backs and would defend them against any woke school board discrimination. Next week, we'll come back to the Pelosi-proposed legislation known as the Equity Act, House Bill H.R. 5 and Senate Bill S.R. 5. This bill has already passed the House. It's currently in the Senate, and if it passes, it has serious negative consequences for Americans of all genders. Well, let's go over another takedown by the progressive left that happened in July of this year. In August of 2021, Nathan Williams wrote in an article entitled, 
ideology-based medicine, how the science-based medicine blog succumbed to the pressure of the trans ideology. He reminded us about the toxicity leveled at anyone who disputes the gender warrior class when it comes to disputing anything's transgender. A recent gender battlefield is a blog journal entitled Science-Based Medicine, SBM. The website is sciencebasedmedicine.org. Science-Based-Medicine, it's all one word, .org. SBM is a long-running science blog founded by Dr. Steve Novella, a clinical neurologist, and co-edited by Dr. David Gorski, a, a surgical oncologist, and, and by Dr. Harriet Hall, a retired family physician and Air Force colonel. Now, this blog aims to present medical information based on the principles of science. It was founded explicitly to combat pseudoscience. Dr. Harriet Hall writes about alternative medicine on this blog, pseudoscience, quackery, and critical thinking. She's also a contributing editor to Skeptic and Skeptical Inquirer and an advisor to Quack Watch. In addition to being co-editor of Science-Based Medicine, Dr. Hall has written over 700 published articles for the SBM blog. Unquestionably, the topics of gender dysphoria and teen female transgenderism are in desperate need of a science-based approach. So publishing on the SBM blog appears to be the perfect place to discuss a GD and teen transgenderism. Now, given this, Dr. Hall's last blog entry was an extensive positive review of Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. Within days of publishing her review of Ms. Schreier's book, the other two editors unilaterally retracted the article and began making apologies to their readership for not having more thoughtfully vetted and thoroughly vetted Dr. Hall's review of Bishire's book. Re remember, Dr. Hall is the third editor with more than 700 blog articles posted on this website and scores of other professional uh, journal articles. Now, thankfully, her perfectly good article that was unceremoniously retracted for ideological reasons was republished elsewhere, and I'm thankful for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had had the opportunity to read it, which I'm sure was the reason it was retracted in the first place. Now, there are scores of other examples of this blatant censorship aimed at silencing any voice and expunging any controversy about transgenderism, especially adolescent transgenderism. Our time is running short, but I'd like to leave you with some appreciation about the growing size of transgenderism among high school students ages 13 through 18. The prevalence of gender dysphoria and the number of people in America who identify as transgendered is truly unknown. As previously mentioned, researchers claim it's around 0.01% uh, in the general population. But with each new study, this percentage seems to go up, especially in the teenage population. However, as early as 2017, the Williams Institute at UCLA Law School claimed that there were approximately 150,000 transgender youths across 130,000 public schools in America. Now, 150,000, uh, this came as quite a shock. That's roughly 0.6% of the approximate 
26 million students in this age range. But where did all these 13 to 18-year-old transgender adolescents come from, especially if in the general population there's only 0.01%? It's like something David Copperfield would magic his way into, and the numbers grow according to the data source. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, issued a report in January of 2019 about a study that was done in 2017, the same year as the Williams report. This report is entitled Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, Transgender Identity and Experiences of Violence, Victimization, Substance Use, Suicide Risk, and Sexual Risk Behaviors Among High School Students in 19 State and Large School Districts. The CDC estimated that approximately 1.8% of high school students aged 13 through 18 identify as transgender. If, if this is correct, it would mean there's approximately 468,000 adolescents self-identifying as transgender. That means somehow we've gone from 150,000 to nearly half billion adolescents uh, between the ages of 13 and 18, self-declaring their transgender students all in the same year. Now, to top that off, another recent study in 2020 claims that there are as many as 9.2%, 9.2% of our high school population that identify as transgender. This would mean that there's approximately 239,000 transgender high school students. Now, but by the end of 2021, I wouldn't be surprised to see this number swell to 3 million or more. And I'm beginning to believe these numbers are all political statements to show how many teen transgenders require the protection of the Democrats' Equity Act. Uh, from my research, it appears that much of this confusion over the numbers comes from varied methodologies and definitions survey researchers are using to probe this issue. There's to be a political movement afoot, however, among teens to not simply identify as male or female, but instead to identify as other, or to remain, as we've talked about before, gender fluid, whatever that means. And other factors complicating the validation of gender dysphoria and transgenderism is that both are self-diagnosed and self-identified constructs. There's no genetic test or any other physical examination by which to make a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. This, among many other reasons, makes it difficult to assess the true motivation for why teen girls are seeking gender-affirming care and they're on the road somehow to gender transition. Nevertheless, the question begs asking, why are the numbers skyrocketing? Before closing, I'd like to leave you with an audio clip of Abigail Shire in her own words, talking about teen transgender phenomena. Um, I'm just talking about teenage girls, and it's a medical question. Why are so many of them transitioning? And um, we, we have to ask that. We have to ask that because when you see a demographic that has never before experienced a condition in any numbers of significance, and all of a sudden, in the last 10 years, they become the leading demographic across the West. And they're getting hormones and surgeries on demand based on self-diagnosis. It's worth asking, is this a correct diagnosis? 
Should they be getting, should they have absolutely no oversight, which they basically do, they have no effective oversight because it's all based on self-diagnosis. And, and are they being helped by this? I mean, if you don't ask those questions, I, I you know, it, you're, you're just not really, you know, an engaged person. And so that, that's how I see the, the issue. Well, our time has come to an end. Rest assured, I'll be back next weekend with the rest of the story. And it's a chapter you're not going to want to miss. Please follow me on Twitter. You can reach me at DFB Harvard. That's Daniel Francis Baranowski. Those initials DFB Harvard, all one word. DFB Harvard, one word. I do follow back. You can also reach me through my show on America Out Loud on that website or email me at Frankly Daniel Show at gmail the frankly daniels show all one word frankly daniels show i can't possibly thank you enough again you were marvelous and so patient with me again today let's do talk therapy again next week same place same time until then cheers and blessings <laughs>